0: Good morning. What a joy it is to be gathered uh, with God's people today. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being with us. A uh, quick note as the baskets are going around, for those of you uh, who are part of the community here, uh, we have just finished the season of the Kept campaign where the elders of the church have really outlined uh, what we believe is the vision that God's given us for the church He's calling us to be in the years ahead. And uh, we concluded that season by asking you, uh, if you are a part of this body, to uh, fill out an intention card letting us know uh, at what level you're in, you intend, by God's grace, with God's help to participate in that campaign. If you haven't yet had a chance to do that, uh, please do that this week. Uh, we want to be able to report back to you um, how that's all shaping up next Sunday. So you can do that by grabbing uh, one of those cards from the Connect desk on your way out, or you can go online to forexchurch.com kept and do it, do it the uh, ones and zeros way if that's more your speed. Uh, so please do that if you haven't yet. Uh, if you have your Bibles, though, you can go ahead and turn to the Old Testament book of Proverbs chapter 18. And as you're turning there, let me uh, tell you what we're going to do next week. Uh, Next week, we're firing the starter pistol of our new series called Believe. We're going to be studying the gospel of John for a very, very long time. We're excited about that. As we were mapping out the series, I think we have seven sermons planned just on John chapter 1. So we'll be in John for quite some time. And uh, so hopefully you'll be encouraged and blessed by that. We think that you will. Um, but this week, we are going to consider a topic from the book of Proverbs. And if you know anything uh, about the Bible or if you've spent any time around church, you know that the book of Proverbs is a book about the virtue of wisdom. And wisdom is, it's more than just being insightful. It's more than being moral it's more than just being intellectual. My, my favorite definition of what wisdom is comes from the pastor, Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson says that wisdom is the art of living skillfully in whatever actual conditions we find ourselves. So the person who's wise knows the, the, the right and moral and holy and just thing to do in every circumstance, even in and especially in circumstances where the black and white, cut and dried rules of morality don't necessarily apply. And so when you find yourself in a sticky situation, a a situation where there seems like a lot of right answers or or only wrong answers and you're not sure what to do, that's the moment that you call upon the wise man or the wise woman to be your counselor because they know how to walk in wisdom even in hard situations like that. If you're in a, excuse me, when we read the book of Proverbs, we see the answer to the question, here's what it looks like to be wise. But of course, the full revelation of wisdom doesn't come until much later. It comes in uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is wisdom incarnated. He is the wisest person who ever lived. And the Gospels give us an account of what a wise life looks like. That's what we're going to jump into next week when we study the Gospel of John. We're going to see Jesus, and we're going to see the story of his redemptive work on our behalf, but we're also going to see what a wise life looks like. Wise life is characterized by rich prayer. Jesus enjoyed deep communion and fellowship with his Father in prayer. It's characterized by knowledge of the Scriptures. Jesus knew the Bible inside and out. It's characterized by a zeal for the glory of God. But in Jesus' example, we also see something else. A wise life is characterized by friendship. Jesus had friends. We see this when you, as you consider the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus had a very large crowd of, of people. It was ever-changing of his followers. People would be added in as he would teach, and then they would, some would go away as he said provocative things. And so he had this, this crowd that would follow his ministry. And from that crowd, he had a group of 12, the 12 disciples, who walked with him, lived with him, and did life and ministry with him. But even from that group of 12, Jesus had an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John who were his, his closest friends, who were with him in his most intimate and vulnerable and significant moments. So you think about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, pondering his, his, his departure, meeting with Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John are with him. Or in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus goes out to pray, his inner circle is there. Jesus had friends. Not only did he have friends, it seems that Jesus actually had a best friend, which is John. John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it'll be his accounting of the life of Jesus that we'll look at next week. The point is that Jesus had friends, and he's the wisest person who ever lived. And if we're going to pursue wisdom like Jesus, we're going to need godly, deep friendships. And Proverbs is going to tell us how it is that we can do that. According to the book of Proverbs, the classroom where we learn godly living is in the laboratory of deep friendship. So if you're willing and able, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read one verse, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. Proverbs 18:24 says this: A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This then the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Surely the grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of God. The word of God endures forever. And may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts. Amen. You may be seated. So who is this friend who sticks closer than a brother? What is friendship with him? Look like. Here's where we're going today. Proverbs is going to teach us that we need friends. You need a friend. You need a friend who's close enough to know and love your soul. You need a friend who has your back. Who's close enough to have your back. And you need a friend who's close enough to tell you the truth. That's where we're going. Our first point. You need a friend who's close enough to know and love your soul. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and this word "sticks" is actually kind of interesting. Uh, it's the same Hebrew word here that's used in the marriage ceremony of Genesis chapter two, where Adam and Eve come together, and it says, "Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife." That word for "stick" is the same word that's used for "hold fast" or to cleave. The friend who sticks closer than a brother is uh, is characterized by devotion that flows out of a deep and ardent love and he's actually saying something very provocative here he's saying that there's a friend who's closer to you than your own family and you have to remember in the in the ancient world family bonds were incredibly significant and much much closer and tighter than the way that we think of them now uh, in a household you'd have several generations of family living together your family was the primary context where you would associate it was your primary community and the writer of proverbs is saying that there's a friend who holds fast to you in a way that's even that's even closer than your own family. You can be known and loved ardently and deeply by this friend. And when you find that, when you have that, you discover it, you find that you have something really amazing. To have someone who sees you, who's close enough to you to see who you really are but loves you anyway and is devoted to you anyway, that's the most freeing thing in the world. One of my favorite things I've ever heard Tim Keller say is this. He says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. I wonder, do you have a friend like this? Do you have a friend who knows your soul and loves you for who you are? If you honestly say, I'm not sure that I do, I I, I don't think you're alone in that. As, As I thought about this and considered this over the last couple of weeks, I think it's as hard as ever to cultivate these kinds of relationships in the cultural moment that we live in right now. There's a lot of reasons for that. We could talk about mobility. We could talk about affluence and busyness and disposable income and all that. But there's two reasons I really want to press into on why these sorts of relationships are difficult to cultivate. Uh, One is technology. Uh, I'm going to rant about technology for a minute. And it's not just because my Twitter account got hacked while I was on vacation this week and sent you some deals on some sweet Um, (laughs) Ray-Bans. Although if you picked up some nice Ray-Bans, you're welcome. Um, (laughs) You know, technology has brought us so many blessings. It's brought so many good things to our lives. Kate can continue her work in the Philippines while being here in Jacksonville because of the blessings that technology brings. And we can just say without reservation, that's good. It's a good thing. It's a blessed thing. But at the same time, there's, there's some negative that comes with that. And for all the good that it's brought, technology has actually corrupted our view of friendship. Social media has, has taken that word friend and, and, and sort of misappropriated it. So now a friend is not someone who knows and loves your soul. A friend is someone that you're connected to on Facebook, who you see their newsfeed. It can be somebody you haven't spoken to since high school. And we just need to be honest. That's an act of vocabulary malpractice, right? Because that's not friendship. That's something very different. Because here's the thing. You can't know the soul of a person and love the soul of a person Based on the highly curated and edited things they post on social media. Even in, maybe you're like, ah, that's why I don't do social media. Well, do you text? The same thing happens when we allow technology to mediate our relationships with other people. Through technology, you can only know someone's highly curated and edited persona. You can't really know who they are. Technology offers us faux friendship because it sands off the, the edges of the real you. It mitigates the mess that's essential to real friendship taking place. There's a, a sociologist named Sherry Turkle who's a technology and social science professor at MIT. And she uh, was early on in the, in the technological boom of, of the early 2000s, wrote a lot about the benefits of technology. But more recently, she's been doing a lot of writing about how technology is actually distorting the way that we relate to one another. I think she's doing very important work. And here's what she says about how we use technology. This is fascinating. Don't miss this. She says, we use our technology to hide from each other, even as we're constantly connected to each other. And she says, this is not just like a millennial problem. This is across all ages. She says, across generations, people can't get enough of each other if and only if they can have each other at a distance in amounts they can control. You see the problem there we can't settle for a relationship that's mediated through technology that's not friendship we need face to face knowledge of one another we need to know and love the souls of other people we need them to give that gift to us as well so technology is one barrier to this kind of relationship a second is our cultural understanding of sexuality you know, the, the sexual revolution is, is, is running roughshod over us right now. I think that's pretty clear to anybody who's paying attention. Uh, and, and apart from the obvious carnage of, of um, identity confusion, gender identity, uh, the upheaval of our sexual ethics, the redefinition of marriage, which I'll talk about in just a minute, our view of sexuality as a culture is also blasted away at our view of friendship. See, culturally, we've, we've sort of placed all of our eggs in the basket of of erotic and romantic love. We've placed all of our money on that stock to the devaluing of the intimacy and and the knowing that takes place in real friendship. By elevating erotic and romantic love, we've devalued the love that we experience in friendship that's critical to our flourishing. I read uh, one writer this week, I think said this in a poignant way. He said, the great modern enemy of friendship turned out to be love. And when he says love, he doesn't mean the kind of love that's, that's self-giving in friendship. He's, he's talking about what he calls the idolatry of eros. The idolatry of erotic love. The belief that true intimacy is known and experienced exclusively in sexual union. So for our culture, in many ways, there's erotic love and fulfillment, or there's nothing. And this is what our culture is selling, guys. And as a church, we can't be buying that. Not only can we not buy it, we have to articulate and model and demonstrate a vision for human flourishing that's very distinct from this idea. Because we have a better vision, a better message. We must be distinct from the culture in this way. Deep friendships need to to characterize our community. We need to to proclaim to people that you can experience fulfilling and life-giving, intimate relationship outside of a romantic relationship. You know, our... Our church is committed to a biblical sexual ethic. And and so uh, we believe that the clear teaching of God's word is that marriage is exclusively uh, the bond between one man and one woman in covenant together. And that's the only context in which sexual expression uh, is allowed and is sanctioned by God. So as a result of that, we do not affirm homosexual relations or same-sex marriage. And we state that unequivocally. We state that unequivocally. But there's a criticism that gets levied at churches who teach an ethic like that, and it sometimes will go something like this: If you teach that, you're consigning people who are who experience same-sex attraction to a lifetime of loneliness. We're consigning them to a sort of subhuman existence. And one of the ways that we answer that criticism is by proclaiming and holding out to the world deep friendships. Relationships where there can be intimacy available outside of sexual union and marriage, in godly friendships, we need this for our own souls and for our witness in the world. I want you to hear from a man named Vaughn Roberts. I want you to hear him uh, him speak about this. Uh, Vaughn Roberts is an English pastor who has uh, written about uh, his own experience of same sex attraction. He is a same sex attracted man. And because of his conviction about what the Bible teaches about these things, he has chosen to live a life of celibacy. And here's what he says about this issue. Committed long-term friendships are an important witness to the possibility of real intimacy and relationship outside or alongside marriage. Our culture, with its low view of friendship, doubts that this is possible and for that reason believes that churches which urge members to uphold the Bible's teaching and remain celibate rather than enter a same-sex partnership or marriage with a non-Christian are condemning them to a life of unsustainable isolation. This must not and need not be so. Those who face unwanted singleness will experience the pain of an unfulfilled longing for an exclusive sexual relationship with one special person for life, which the Bible reserves for the marriage of a man and a woman. But... They need not feel isolated. He goes on to say, Although I feel I have made very few significant sacrifices as a Christian, I can certainly testify from my own experience that, as Christ promised, they have been more than compensated by his gracious provision. And although there are many challenges in being single, one of the greatest advantages is the extra time available to invest in friendships, which bring much joy and strengthen me in living for Christ. These are the kind of friendships that should characterize our community. We need to hold that out to a world who's dying to hear it. We need friends. Not Facebook friends, not companions who exist on the fringes of our lives, but real friends who are close enough to know our souls and to love us. Not only that, our second point, we need friend, you need a friend who's close enough to have your back. You need a friend who's going to be there for you. Let's look back at our, our verse together. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There's a sorting that's taking place here. There's a splitting of, of your social circle into two groups. On the one hand, you have, you have companions. These are the people that you're friendly with. But over here, you have the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And this is all fine. And it's great to have these. It's great to have companions, but you need a friend. Because if all you have is companions, when your dark day comes when you when you're going down you're going to go to ruin but if you have a friend that's not going to happen to you you know why because your friend has your back and they have your back in, in two ways there's two gifts that your real friend gives to you one is deep empathy and the other is steadfast presence first is empathy look at proverbs 25:20. 20. it says whoever sings songs that should be understand that should be understood to mean songs of joy Whoever sings songs of joy to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. This is, really, this is really artfully stated. He's saying someone who sings songs of joy to a person who has a heavy heart is like the person who steals your jacket on a cold winter's night. It's vivid, right? This, uh, and the second part of, of that phrase, uh, vinegar on soda, some of your translations will say like vinegar on a sore, Now, I I love you, but not enough to actually test that out, but I have a feeling it's unpleasant, right? What what he's trying to communicate is that when you're suffering, your real friend is is so connected to you. They're so empathetic toward your suffering and toward your situation. They wouldn't dream of singing songs to your heart because they can't can't sing songs of joy when your heart is heavy. They wouldn't dream of doing that. When, When you're wrecked, your friend, she can't sing songs of praise. She enters into your suffering and your pain. This is the gift that we give of deep empathy and emotional sensitivity. We also, the friend also has your back by giving you the gift of steadfast presence. On your, on your worst day, the friend who sticks closer than a brother is ready to drop everything and serve you at a moment's notice. The friend who sticks closer than a brother doesn't chafe against the sacrifice that friendship often demands that you make for the sake of your friend. It doesn't grimace and do the bare minimum of what's required. The friend is there, joyfully, ready to serve. It's not even a question. There's this constancy to true friendship that delivers your friend to your doorstep when you experience your worst moment. A few years ago, our men's retreat speaker was uh, a guy named Les Newsom, who works with Reform University Fellowship. And he told the story of a young man in their college ministry who was engaged to be married and just before the wedding, tragically, his fiance was killed in a car accident. And he talked about, about just being in awe as he watched this young man's friends just come around him. They just Velcroed themselves to him and walked through these difficult days with him. And he said, a few years later, this, this young man uh, met another young gal, and, and they ended up getting married. And, and at his wedding reception, he gave a toast to his groomsmen. And he said, I went through the darkest days of my life, and you were there. He said, I, to be honest, I don't remember the things that you said, but I will never forget that you were there for me on my darkest day. You ever heard someone say, going through that difficult time, going through that crisis, it really showed me who my real friends are? You ever heard someone say that? That's Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions will come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The difference between a companion and a friend is the difference between, call me if you need anything, and I'm there. The companion says, let me know if I can help. The friend says, I'm there. The friend says, I'm not going to let you go through this dark day alone. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to keep you from going to ruin. You know, in in Aleppo, Syria, right now there's significant conflict and suffering going on. Aleppo is the the home base for the forces who are attempting to overthrow the Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. And in response to these efforts, Assad is bombing the city of Aleppo with airstrikes. The strikes often uh, hit residential neighborhoods and they've resulted in thousands of people dying, many through uh, just the horrible outcome of being buried alive in their own home. This is, it's a terrible uh, terrible, awful situation and, and people just live in constant fear that this is going to happen to them. But there's this group of people in Aleppo they're called the Syrian Civil Defense. They call themselves the White Helmets. Maybe you've heard of them. And here's what they do. As soon as A bomb hits while everyone else, almost everyone else, is running away from the blast zone. They run into the blast zone. And they use their hands, and they use whatever tools they can find around, and they dig people out. They hear the cries of the people who are buried under the rubble, and they dig until they find them. Sometimes digging for six, seven, eight hours long into the night. And they do this at great risk. To themselves, because it's very common for the bombers to come back and do a second and a third wave of bombings. But they dig and they dig and they dig. And the White Helmets uh, to date have rescued an estimated 70,000 people from being buried alive in their homes. One of these young men was interviewed by 60 Minutes, and, and he said that when we're successful in a rescue, we feel as if we've brought a person back to life. Well, your friend who sticks closer than a brother, he's your white helmet. He's the minister of of rescue for you on your darkest day. He has your back when your life is falling apart. He looks at you through the rubble of your own sin or your own suffering or your own dark night of the soul and says, if you go to ruin, it will literally be over my dead body. Who has your back right now? Who's that person Who, if you were to experience your dark day to day, would sprint toward the rubble of your life rather than running away. You need friends like that. You need a friend who's close enough to know and love your soul. You need a friend who's close enough to have your back. And you also need, thirdly, a friend who's close enough to tell you the truth. Man, how desperately do we need people to tell us the truth? Let me say something that could be a little controversial. It might hurt your feelings a little bit, but it's worth it. So let's just, let's take a deep breath. Your self-perception isn't always trustworthy. Amen? You know how I know yours isn't? Because mine isn't either. (laughs) And here's the truth. Here's what friendship is for. We need people to help us to understand the truth when we're not seeing it. Sometimes this means encouragement. Sometimes we, we believe lies about who we are in Christ or about who God is for us in Jesus Christ. So we need to be encouraged. We need to be held up. We need to be restored. We need a friend to tell us the truth that we are loved and accepted in Christ. But sometimes it's the other way. That's the much harder time, isn't it? There are times that we are proud and arrogant and blinded to our own sin. And in those moments, we need a friend who is willing to tell us the truth. Proverbs twenty-seven. Verses 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The, the beauty of the Hebrew poetry here, he's talking about friendly wounds and enemy kisses. Proverbs 27, 17, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. You see, your real friend, the friend who sticks closer than a brother, has a vantage point on your life that gives them insight that you'll die without. You need to know what they see. So your real friend looks at your life and they say, I see a pattern of weakness here. I see, I see ongoing patterns of sin. I see, I see weaknesses and deficiencies in character. And I have to say it because I love my friend, even if it wounds, even if it causes pain. I have to say it. The person who's unwilling to say a hard truth to you, that's not your friend. When we're unwilling to say the truth that we know that needs to be said, it's not we don't do it because we love them. Sometimes we hide behind that, right? Oh, I just love them too much to tell them the truth. No, we love ourselves when we do that. Oscar Wilde said, a true friend stabs you in the front. <laughs> And I think if the writer of Proverbs were to read that, he would say, amen, that's right. Because what happens when you need the friendly wound, but you end up getting the enemy's kiss? You march into disaster. You move toward ruin. In the 17th century, King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden ordered the commissioning of the warship called the Vasa. And he uh, was in an arms race. He was trying to build uh, Sweden into a superpower, and so he would order all of these changes as construction was underway. Uh, so he would uh, the keel, which is the bottom structural component of the ship, was already under construction when he said, you need to make it longer. The architect of the ship knew that this was a very bad idea, but he knew, also knew how hot-tempered the king was, and he was unwilling to say anything, and they did their best to make it work. A short time later, Gustavus ordered that a second uh, gun deck be added to the ship. And the ship was not designed to support the additional weight that was going to bring about. But nobody said anything about the compromise it was going to make in the ship's seaworthiness. They just went ahead and did it. And as a result, when it was time for the Vasa to finally launch this grand, triumphant national moment in 1628, the Vasa set sail from Stockholm Harbor. And after a couple of minutes, the ship healed and sank and 53 souls were lost. And that warship, this crowning achievement of King Gustavus's reign sat at the bottom of the sea for 300 years. It was excavated in the 20th century. And this project, which was the most expensive one that was ever undertaken by the Swedish military, was a total loss. And why? Why did it happen? Because no one was willing to tell the king the truth. And by the way, if you're powerful or wealthy or influential in some way, you need to know The more powerful, influential, and wealthy you are, the less likely it is there are people around you who are going to be willing to tell you the truth. That's why you need your friends. My least favorite show maybe of all time is American Idol. Uh, It's been mercifully canceled recently. And, uh, you know, in American Idol, in the early rounds, they'll bring these people in to sing before the big famous judges, right? Which, by the way, you know the only reason they do that is so that they can be humiliated and laughed at? It's like a sporting thing they do on national TV, to people who are made in the image of God, but that's another sermon for another time. What happens after the bad singer goes and sings in front of the American Idol judges, right? And Randy, Randy's like laughing and covering his eyes. Simon's making witty British remarks about them. They, they leave in tears. They're utterly humiliated. And they go outside the room and Ryan Seacrest is there. And who's with him, right? Who's with Ryan Seacrest in the room? You would think it's family and friends, but it's not. It's actually that person's enablers, Right? Because somebody along the way should have said to this person, maybe singing is not your thing, man. (laughs) You're a beautiful snowflake and you've got some other gift for the world, but it's not this. So don't go on national television and embarrass yourself. That person who can't sing and wants to go on American Idol, they, they need faithful wounds from a friend. But instead they get profuse kisses from an enemy. As they say, oh man, these guys know what they're talking about. You're amazing. You know? Listen, the person who tells you the hard truth that you need to hear, that's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. You might have a lot of Facebook friends. You might have a wide circle of acquaintances. You might have a big network. But do you have these? Do you have a friend who's close enough to you to tell you the truth? Because you see, the man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And here's the, here's the, the vexing and, and sticky and hard part about this. This is really hard, isn't it? Do you find this kind of stuff easy? I don't. Friendship is hard. To be, to be vulnerable to someone, to allow them to know your soul and to know the soul of another person, that's a difficult thing. People are messed up. You're messed up. I'm messed up. It's costly. It's costly to have someone's back. It's costly to be close enough to someone to, to stick up for them and to serve them when their life is difficult. It's hard to tell people the truth. We don't want to be, we don't want to be thought of as judgy. We don't, want to, we don't want to be misunderstood. We don't want to come across as a jerk. Why is, this, why is this so hard? It would be so easy at this moment just to say, we're done here. Now, you should go be that kind of friend. You ought to go find some of those friends for yourself, right? That'd be the easiest thing in the world to do. But I don't want to load you down with shoulds and oughts. That's only going to take you to the law. What I want us to do is I want us to go to the gospel and understand the real reason this kind of friendship is hard. It's hard because of the relational effects of sin. We need to think bigger than just our relationship. We need to think bigger than just our moment. We need to think about the grand scope of God's activity in human history to understand why this is hard and how we can get the power to have these kinds of friendships. You see, from the very beginning, before the foundation of the world, God existed in perfect friendship. Within the economy of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God enjoyed perfect fellowship within himself. In eternity past, and out of the overflow of that joy that God had in the economy of the Trinity, God creates man in his image. We are made for that same kind of relationship. And he places us in the garden to have it. God says it's not good for man to be alone. He gives him Eve for them to enjoy perfect friendship and fellowship together with one another and with God. But in the fall, when sin enters the world, all of this goes badly. We stab God in the back. And you got to understand, sin is not just breaking God's law. It's also breaking fellowship with God. And when our fellowship with God is broken, our fellowship with one another is necessarily going to be broken as well. And so as a result of sin, Adam and Eve are at odds relationally with God and with one another, and every descendant who comes after them is born into the same problem. We don't have a relationship with God that we're made for. We don't have the relationship with one another that we are created to enjoy because of sin. And in the redemption of Jesus Christ, this is so good. Good news for friendship. Our friend, Jesus Christ, the one whom we've rejected, he doesn't reject us in turn. Instead, he pursues us. He loves us. He loves us all the way to the end. This is so sweet. Jesus is the friend who knows your soul and loves you anyway. He knows how messed up you are. He knows the idolatry of your heart. He knows all the times that you've sought to dethrone him and to have your own way in your life. He knows all the times you've betrayed him and every other friend you've ever had, and yet he loves you anyway. Jesus is the friend who's close enough to you to have your back. He comes and he lives the life of perfect obedience to the Father that you were supposed to live and didn't. He goes to the cross to suffer the death that was due for your sin in your place as your substitute. And then Jesus comes close and he tells you the truth that there is is life, there's restoration with God available to you. Repent. Believe the gospel. You can be restored. There is life eternal, life everlasting for you in fellowship with God. Repent and believe. You know, in John 14 through 17, Jesus, we get the extended narration of Jesus' time in the upper room with his disciples. And in chapter 15, He's he's explained to them the significance of what he's about to do before he goes to the cross. And in chapter 15, he says this, beginning in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father... I have made known to you. See, in Jesus' work of redemption, he gives to all of his disciples, those in the upper room that night, and then on down the centuries to you and to me, he gives them the gift of his friendship. Can you believe that? Can you believe we have friendship with the God who made us for himself? Jesus says to us in the midst of our sin and our brokenness, he says, I know your unloveliness, but I will love you to the very end of your unloveliness. He says, I'm the friend who sticks closer than a brother. I'm the friend who will hold fast to you in love so that you will never go to ruin. Jesus says, faithful are the wounds of a friend and the wounds that your sin deserved, instead of inflicting them upon you, I will receive them in myself. Jesus says, I will suffer the loss of friendship with the Father that I've enjoyed from eternity past so that you might enjoy friendship with the Father for all of eternity. And so here's the thing. If you've tasted friendship like that, if you've experienced the kiss of friendship with Jesus, you're liberated to give and receive that same kind of friendship with others. It's not shoulds and oughts, it's beholding the glory. Of Jesus Christ and then going and doing what he's freed you to do we love because he has first loved us and here's the thing if you are fully known and loved by God why would you fear the rejection of anyone if Jesus Christ has your back if you are fully safe and secure in his love why would you worry why would you withhold that love from others if He's spoken His words of life to you, why wouldn't you be free to speak truth to those around you? We can't live wise and skillful lives without godly friendships. And we won't push through the mess of real relationship to cultivate these kinds of friendships unless we've experienced the kiss of friendship with Jesus Christ. That's why He invites us to table fellowship this morning, a symbol of His friendship with us. He invites us to this table to remember that we're no longer his enemies, we're no longer slaves, but he calls us his friends, known and loved, seen and accepted and liberated to love as he has loved us. May our fellowship be characterized by this kind of friendship. For God's glory and for our joy. Amen.